welcome to our Mother's Day service. It's so nice to see uh, all your faces, your eyes. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Andrew, can you get three more chairs? Awesome. So, a couple uh, brief announcements. Oh, thanks, Andy. Uh, this week, we have a youth game night on Friday night at 7 o'clock on Zoom. So, talk to McKenna for that. We also, on Saturday, have a uh, women's campfire at the Robics house at 9 a.m. So, if you are a lady of any age, you know, uh, you're welcome at our place. We hope that you'll come. And then Sunday, we have church service, regular church service next week. But I think it's the following Saturday, we have a men's campfire followed by our business meeting on the 23rd. So I think those are all the big announcements. Any other announcements that I'm not thinking of? Okay. Well, uh, I'm so excited that today is Mother's Day. We do have uh, afterwards as a gift to uh, any of our moms, even any of our, uh, your, your girl, we have a flower for you, right? So any age, whether you're mom or not, we want to just bless you. Say love you, uh, and it's it's good to have you here. Uh, and uh, we did send out an announcement. If you're wondering, uh, for the masks, you don't have to wear them outdoors. But we do ask if you're going to talk to each other like after the service and be closer than six feet, then you would wear a mask. Uh, but since the, the governor lifted the orders, we're not requiring anything more than that. But let's just be mindful of each other's uh, what each other feels comfortable with as well. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start our little uh, our, 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 our Mother's Day series here. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we get to worship you. We get to experience your grace. We get to be here. We get to celebrate our moms. Uh, thank you for all the moms uh, in our lives and the, the women that you have given us to shape us, form us, raise us, sacrifice so much time and love and energy for us. We're so grateful for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so today we're talking about the mothers of Jesus. Uh, and what, what is that? What's that all about? I thought there was just one mother. It's Mary. And you, you'd be right uh, about that, but we're going to get into it a little bit uh, here. But first I wanted to start by talking about Mother's Day. Maybe you are very familiar with this holiday. I was just kind of looking back into the, the history of it. Uh, the first one was in... Uh, 19, uh, well, 1908 is when it started, and it became an official holiday in 1914. Uh, this lady named Anna Jarvis uh, wanted to honor mothers, and she had uh, an important mother in her own life. Uh, but then she didn't really like how commercialized it became, so the one who like, started it kind of became against it by the end, because it became uh, an industry. And more phone calls are made on Mother's Day than any other day of the year. Apparently there's a spike in phone traffic of 37% people are calling home to their mothers. So I bet like now it's going to be like a spike in Zoom chats or, uh, uh, or FaceTime chats. Uh, today is a special day to remember our moms, whether our biological or adopted moms or maybe spiritual moms, right? People that have poured into us and taught us so many things. Uh, so today is a special day to, to honor our cornerstone moms. We are going to give you uh, each a carnation as you head out today, uh, so make sure we don't uh, forget that. Uh, but I want to start with like the, the, kind of the first mother of uh, Jesus. That's going to be the obvious one that you're all thinking of, Mary. So as I was reflecting on Mary's life, 
Uh, she was pretty normal. Right? She grew up in Nazareth, the town uh, north of Jerusalem. Uh, but then, like, into that, into that existence, something extraordinary happened. An angel appeared to her. God chose her uh, to bear his son. And it was a pretty wild event, right? The angel showed up and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. This idea of favor is that God's grace was upon her. God had chosen her for a special task. And yet this was like a terrifying encounter. And she's, uh, the angel said, do not be afraid. Without favor. And the angel said, you're going to give birth to a son of the most high. The name of Jesus. It's pretty, pretty terrifying task, right, to be chosen as the, the vessel to give birth to God's Son, the Holy Spirit. And Mark tells us a lot about her. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, whatever God wants, I will do it. I don't know if you've seen like any of the pictures, or paintings, or artwork that we have of Mary, but one of the common themes uh, it's like there's this glow around her, right? There's this like, heavenly halo around Mary. And I think sometimes that gives us this impression that Mary was like a perfect mom. She never made any mistakes. And then all the other moms like, go, go be like Mary. Be perfect. <laughs> Raise God's son. And, uh, you know, if you look at Mary's story, she wasn't perfect. Right, so like the very first miracle that Jesus performed the wedding at Cana, he didn't want to do it, but his mom told him to do it. It's like, it's not my time. And Mary's like, yes, it is. <laughs> right, so she kind of had her own plan. And then actually when he did start doing these miracles and when he did start teaching, what happens? Like he's teaching and his mom and brothers, they try to get him and bring him home. He's grown too big. He's from Nazareth. Don't forget. Maybe he's gone a little bit off the rockers, and it's kind of like an intervention, right? So, like, when he's first born, and, like, the, the shepherds show up, it's just like she, she thought about these things. Like, she meditated on them. So we do have this picture of, like, a really God-honoring person, and, and she is, but then she's not perfect, right? She, she, she questions her own son. She questions the Son of God. She questions Jesus. Uh, and yet... If we look at Jesus' presence in her life, it's a gracious presence. He loves Mary. We actually see at the very end of the story, like Mary is there as Jesus is hanging on the cross. I can only imagine how appreciated that must have been for her as a mom. Uh, Jesus actually said to one of his disciples, John, standing next to her, like, this is your mother. Take, take care of her. Right? So we see like this, this kind of arc in, in Mary's life, uh, you know, being the favored one, and yet also wrestling with perhaps some doubts, struggling, not really getting it, and yet Jesus was still gracious to her. She was favored by Jesus. I think that's an important message for us today, that we're all on our own journeys, and moms, I know you're all wonderful, but Maybe despite the cards you get today, you're, you're not perfect. <laughs> I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. 
And yet Jesus uh, is showing favor to you. Jesus wants to show his grace to you and his love to you. And no matter whether you're like, you know, the halo mom of the day, right, where you're doing everything perfect and you're the best mom in the world, or you're doubting, you're struggling, you're wrestling through life, your favor. Jesus loves you. And so I hope today can be an encouragement because we're going to listen to some other moms. They're like, you know, it's Mother's Day. I really shouldn't be the one talking <laughs> this entire time. So we're going to hear from some moms themselves about the mothers of Jesus. And so, okay, so who are these mothers of Jesus? So if you look at Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy. There's a family tree. We're going through Jesus' family tree today. We're looking at Tamar. Monica's going to talk about Tamar. So there's, there's five women mentioned in his genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, who Angela's going to talk about, Ruth, Anne's going to share about, and Bathsheba, Diana's going to get out of the park with at the end. I'm just excited to hear uh, from them whatever these stories have brought out uh, to them in their, their own lives and just be an encouragement to all of you. Uh, so I've probably talked past my time limit and I'm going to hand it back to Andy. Good morning. I'm a little shorter than my husband, so things get done. Um, the story of Tamar and Judah may not be a familiar one to you. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing first. You can find it in Genesis 38, and I do recommend it's a great read. Not particularly family friendly, so maybe not what you want to read around the grudge table today. Um, but it is a great story. Uh, and the fact is, Tamar, she gets a bad rap. She gets a bad rap. Not because of the story itself, necessarily, but because of how often she's remembered. If you know anything about the story of Judah and Tamar, you might know that Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and then sleeps with her father-in-law. Not a great series of actions, no matter what the rest of the story says, right? Kind of questionable to start out with. But actually, the rest of the story does give us a little bit of insight into what was going on with Tamar. And I'm really excited to share it with you. Because I was thinking about this story, um, to ready this morning, uh, I, like many people, judged Tamar. I judged her, and I thought of her basically as the broken, sinful woman who Broken, sinful woman <laughs> who is included in the genealogy of Christ mainly to show that God is gracious and can work for broken people. And I still think that's true. But there's a little bit more to it. Uh, Judah, uh, Tamar is judged in her own story, too, actually. Uh, first, she's judged by her father-in-law, Judah, because Tamar marries his firstborn son, and the son dies before they're able to have a child. And so Judah, following this ancient tradition, tells his second son, go marry your brother's widow and produce a child. You have to continue the family line. But then his second son also dies before they're able to have a child. And so Judah judges Tamar and basically says, I, I think she's cursed. Uh, and he does have another son. But instead of marrying Tamar to his last son, he says, go back to your father's house, live as a widow, and wait for my youngest son to grow up. But he never intends on letting her marry him because, again, he's judged her to be the problem. He thinks that if she marries his youngest son, he's going to die too. 
So he basically like stamps her forehead, uh, defective merchandise returned to sender, and sends her back to her father's home with this promise of marrying a man that he's never actually going to let happen. And by doing this, actually, Judah was opening Tamar up to extreme societal judgment also. I mean, this idea of being married twice and now going back to live with your father and not having had a kid in this time period, total, total shame. Maybe you've had a point in your life where you've been judged really, really unfairly by people who didn't know the whole story. It gets worse with Tamar. She gets judged again in her story, this time for something she actually does do. She does disguise herself and sit at the city gate. She does have sex with a man in promise of material gain. She does get pregnant. And so her father-in-law, Judah, again, judges her for doing this and actually condemns her to death. Uh, now, this is a little bit, uh, again, you remember Tamar perhaps a little unfairly. You often remember her as, as seducing as seducing her father-in-law. Uh, but actually, just as that she put on the veil and she bought stuff on the city gate, and he was the one who propositions her. And the story is in direct contrast to the one that comes right after it. It's actually the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, which is, again, a not family-friendly story about a woman who really aggressively tries to seduce a man and tempt him and forcibly tries to be with him, even as he resists. And so the author gives us these two stories as a contrast. In our story, Tamar, along comes Judah, her father-in-law, and he propositions her. She gets pregnant, he finds out, and again, he judges her, he condemns her, actually, to death. Judah doesn't seem super duper interested in taking his own accountability here for his own moral failures in this arena. Situation. 
But I think it's really important to see her story in light of the rest of the story of Genesis, and actually in light of the rest of the story of Judah, this other main character who's always associated with her. See, before this encounter, Judah, not a good guy. And in fact, in the very previous chapter, he's the one who had the idea of selling his brother into slavery in Egypt. But after this story, Judah totally turns it around. He becomes the guy who's willing to substitute himself so that his youngest brother, Benjamin, can go back to their father. By the end of the book of Genesis, Judah's actually the one that Jacob blesses with the family covenant promise. Not his oldest son, not his next son. It's Judah that he says, it's going to be through you that kings are going to come. It's going to be through you that Messiah is going to be born. What changes for Judah? How does he go from the bad guy to the good guy? It's this. It's this story with Tamar. See, Tamar offered herself, she offered her body, in a very real sense, and as a result, Judah's life is completely changed. She is judged, and she is condemned, and in the end, she becomes this vessel of blessing. And then Tamar in the story is putting a head for that ultimate descendant. In this story, Tamar is kind of a Christ figure. So, the message is not be more like Tamar. That's not what I wanted to walk away from. But I do think there are a few things, moms, this is for me to you, everybody else you can listen in, that we can think about as we think about Tamar's story. Uh, the first one is, let's stop judging other moms. <laughs> uh, it's so easy to judge people's parenting, right? And it starts for moms before the baby's even born. How much weight are you going to gain? When are you going to get the weight off? Right? Oh, are you drinking coffee while you're pregnant? And then the baby's born, and it just continues. Oh, are you going to use formula? Are you going to have to work? What kind of health are you going to use? Are they close to you? Are you going to sleep train? And then it just keeps going as they get older. Right? Where are they going to go to school? Are they polite? Are they rambunctious? Are they having trouble in school? Are they a healthy weight? What are they eating? What are their career aspirations? Are they going to go to college? Are they dating anyone? Are they married? Why don't they have kids of their own? There's a lot, right? There's a lot. Whether real or perceived, there's a lot of judgment that goes floating around. Because we love to judge each other. Because if we judge each other, we feel relieved about our own choices. I think Judah probably felt relieved as he condemned Tamar. See, it was right for me to send her back to her father's house. She was cursed. But Judah didn't have all the parts of the story, right? We almost never have all the parts of the story as we look at other families. Jesus even says, if you see actually something that is an issue in someone else's life, something that's maybe a bad thing, maybe like a speck, die, Jesus doesn't say, look at the speck and feel better about yourself. He doesn't say, look at the speck and talk about it on, with your spouse on the way home. He doesn't say, look at the speck and post about it on social media, right? He says, in order to help your friend take the log out of your own eye first. And moms are going to have logs, Right? I mean, Tamar did do stuff in this story that she is legitimately judged for, and we're going to do stuff that's, we're going to mess it up. We're going to mess it up. And there's that temptation to either make excuses, right, or to condemn ourselves, and Tamar doesn't do either of those things. She doesn't come up with a list of excuses for why she put on that veil and sat by that gate. She doesn't let herself be condemned unfairly. And so we, on this side of the cross, we can look back to her ultimate descendant, and we can know that even when he messed up, Jesus is taking that condemnation for us. And because of what he did, we can be forgiven by our kids, by our spouses, ultimately by God. Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what other people think of your parenting, actually. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what I think about Tamar. 
it matters what God thinks about Tamar and what God thinks about us. And if your faith is in him, it says that he is the ultimate judge, and he sees you as his precious and wonderful child, holy and dearly loved. So moms, that's my hope for you. Good morning and happy Mother's Day to everyone. The mother of Jesus I'm going to speak about today is Rahab. And I want to start her story at the end and rewind back to the beginning of it. What we know about Rahab at the beginning of her life is short and sweet. She was a faithful believer in God, a wife, and the mother of Boaz. Matthew 1.5 simply states in the genealogy of Jesus, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, her son, she raised to be kind, faithful, generous, and accepting of those who had different backgrounds. We know after her death that the writers of the New Testament were impressed with her faith and her good works. She's hailed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 with the likes of Abraham and Noah. In James 2.25, he speaks of her acts in Jericho as righteous. When you hear about Rahab at the end of her life, you think, what an amazing woman. She must have lived the most blessed life. But if you thought that, you would be wrong. Because her faith and her righteousness came from strife and difficulty and bold, brave choices she had to make. You see, let's rewind. The first time we hear about Rahab is in the city of Jericho, where she's known simply as Rahab the prostitute. I know, second prostitute of the day. <laughs> what a Mother's Day. Um, it's maybe not the label you think of when you think, Hall of Faith, prostitute. Rahab's story in the Bible is short, but it's action-packed. And you can find her entire story in Joshua 2 and chapter 6 in Joshua, but Jonathan only gave me seven minutes, so here's the Netflix synopsis of Rahab. Joshua sent out spies to Jericho because they were going to conquer the land. The spies ended up at Rahab's house. The king hears that there are spies at Rahab's house and says, bring out those men. They've come to spy on the whole land. Rahab lies to the king. Again, not maybe the behavior you consider righteous, like James talks about. But she says, the men were here, but you know what? They're gone. Go. You can still maybe catch them. And as the king's men are running outside the city gate, Rahab has safely hidden the spies on top of her roof. And Rahab boldly asks the spies, not only to spare her life, but the life of her parents, her siblings, and all who belong to them. And the spies say, our lives for your lives. So they instruct her that that she needs to put a red cord in her window so they know to spare all in her home when they come to attack. And she lets the spies go down out her window or roof, and off they go and hide for three days so they can return to Joshua and conquer Jericho. So we see how Rahab's story begins. She's a prostitute and a liar. We see how it ends. She's one of the mothers of Jesus and hailed in the hall of faith. How did she complete such a transformation? What I learned through Rahab is not to fear bold moves of faith. Rahab lived in a place that was going to be taken over by the Israelites. Even though all the people around her in Jericho had heard of the deeds God had done for the Israelites, 
like parting the Red Sea, destroying kingdoms, the people around Jericho were not going to believe in the Israelites' God. But Rahab made a bold choice. She believed. A bold choice for somebody who was literally on the outskirts of society. She lived on the outside wall of Jericho. That's how she could let the spies go. Um, and it says in Joshua 2.11, she declares to the spies, For the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and on earth below. Rahab's name is always going to be tied to the phrase prostitute. However, to me, I think that's just a very small side note in her life. I think we've all done things we're not proud of. We all done things we're ashamed of. Um, but what I see in Rahab is she's a brave woman. She made a bold choice to have faith in God. She could have turned the spies away and been done with the drama. However, she heard the amazing things God had done and believed. She changed from a prostitute to God's secret operative in one smooth move. She was willing to take a risk. And in that moment, Rahab went from that town prostitute to a woman who was instrumental in getting God's people to their own land. She took the opportunity God gave her and she started that down the road to the Hall of Faith. It's like something right out of a spy movie. She came up with the cover story for the event. She found the spies a place to hide. She lied to the king and even had a distraction and sent away the king's men. She came up with a plan to save her family. She planned the spies' escape. Kind of makes you wonder if the spies had a plan at all. Um, but she found a way for her belief in God to transform her story. Often, I think we are so practical about our faith. We're so busy as mothers, we forget to take risks. We get busy caring for our families, and especially with everything in the pandemic, it's easy to forget to take a risk for God. Let me tell you how this story would have gone if it were me. Knock, knock. Hi, we're spies for God. Will you uh, hide us and help us? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure I even want to answer the door. <laughs> so let me think about that. And then I'd answer the door and I'd say, that seems like a really amazing opportunity, you know? Can you come back in a few days so I can make a pro-con list and decide whether or not it's worthwhile? And um, also, I need to kind of think about, you know, will these new people accept me and my family? Is my family going to be on board with this decision? And I'd go on and on, overthinking it. I'd sit and worry. What did Rahab do? She took action, bold action based on her faith. So in short, if it was me, Joshua would be waiting a while. Maybe the Israelites never get to Jericho. Who knows? But I know that even in the midst of the day-to-day -day important tasks we do as mothers, there are opportunities for God. What started out that day as two strangers visiting a prostitute became the transformation of Rahab's life. It became the saving of two spies' lives. It became Joshua's victory over Jericho. It became the saving of her family. It became her salvation and bold faith in God to the point that she's listed in the hall of faith. It became a branch of the family in Jesus' tree. And that red cord Rahab placed in her window for protection is like the blood of Jesus that offers us protection. I know often I forget just how amazing that protection really is. I forget that it's worth bold, brave acts of faith. Our lives may not always offer us the opportunity to be the God spy or secret operative, unless you count me hiding in the bathroom for my family for a 
moment of peace. <laughs> but I bet if you look around, there are opportunities for you to take risks for God. You're brave. This past year has forced moms to do the unexpected, the unknown, and take on more than ever before. The risks you take for God and the protection you have from Jesus, this red cord, can have long-lasting repercussions. If you think about Rahab's risk, it led to changes that lasted generations. Joshua says her descendants are still in the land today. She's in the family tree of Jesus, a mother of Jesus. So I want you all to know, no matter where your story's starting today, just remember bold faith and a willingness to take a risk can transform your ending. Say of course, 
May he be blessed by the Lord. The Naomi instructed Ruth to go see Boaz on the threshing floor that night. So Ruth did as Naomi said, her too, and went down to the threshing floor and uncovered his feet where he lay. Boaz woke at midnight to see Ruth laying at his feet and was startled. Who are you? he asked. She replied, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread your wing of your cloak over your servant, for you are a redeemer. He said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have been even more loyal now than before in not going after the young men, whether poor or rich. Now rest assured, my daughter, I will do for you whatever you say. All my townspeople know you to be a worthy woman. Now I'm in fact a redeemer, but there is another redeemer close to me. Stay where, where you are for tonight, and tomorrow, if he will act as Redeemer for you, good. But if he will not, as the Lord lives, I will do it myself. Ruth 3, 9-13. After this, Boaz went and spoke to the elders of the city, telling them of Naomi's inheritance, a parcel of land from their relative in Lebanon. He told the Redeemer that in taking this land, he would have the duty of marrying Ruth. But the Redeemer renounced this claim to the land, and so Boaz bought it for himself. Then Boaz took Ruth as his wife, and together they had a son named Obed. Obed gave birth to Jesse, who was the father of David, the eventual king of Israel. Ruth and I have a one thing in common. We both left our own families and lived to a different land. What amazes me about Ruth is her loyalty to her mother-in-law with complete trust. She knew she would be despised by being a Moabite. She knew that she would remain poor by being a widow. She knew she may not see her family again. She set aside her own interests and followed Naomi and her God till death. Her love and care for Naomi were so evident that the Israelites took notice. She had never thought of herself and what would become of her by honoring Naomi's request to go lay at Boaz's feet that night. God weaved this woman in the lineage to Jesus to show us he too wants to redeem us from a sense of that entanglement. This story encouraged me to continue trusting God, regardless of the circumstances. He is our Father who loves us, our Provider who gave Jesus to redeem us through his blood, and the giver of eternal life. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Good morning. What a glorious day. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I'm amazed by listening to these women's stories of the similarities in them, the boldness of faith that they show, but the failures that they have, the, the sins they have, the things that God uses to encourage us as he redeems them. I've always been grateful for the story of David a man after God's own heart, who committed terrible sins, terrible sins, yet repented and was shown God's grace. What a reassurance for me. And Bathsheba is part of that story. The Bible really doesn't say a lot about Bathsheba, yet most of us know the story. We 
me to watch a 
um, and she then figures later in the story with Bathsheba. One of David's sons, Adonijah at this time, put himself forward and said, I will be king. Adonijah was at that time the oldest of David's surviving sons. As he began to carry out his plan to take the throne, Nathan the prophet comes back into the story. He heard of this and he goes to Bathsheba and he gives her some advice. He says what she should do to save her life and the life of her son Solomon. David was probably around 70 years old at this time, um, and I believe that Bathsheba was about 50 and Solomon maybe about 30. Nathan instructs Bathsheba to go to King David and remind him of his promise to have Solomon succeed him as king. Yet, he says, Adonijah has declared himself king without David's knowledge. David takes action. He rises from his bed. And Nathan comes, um, comes in to confirm the story. Bathsheba shows the king deference as she goes to tell a story, states her appeal. And Nathan arrives to corroborate what Bathsheba has said. David then calls Bathsheba back into his presence. And then the king took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed low, low to the, with her face to the ground, kneeling before the Lord, and said, May my Lord the King David live forever. Again, Bathsheba shows boldness and strength in going to David with a situation that needs to be made right. She's holding David to his promise, but more importantly, she's carrying out the will of God as brought to her by the prophet David. If Adonijah had become king, there was a strong chance that Solomon and Bathsheba would have been killed. Bathsheba's boldness in going before the king saved both of their lives, and as we now know, continued David's line through Solomon for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the last story that we have of Bathsheba, Adonijah, having lost his chance to become king, comes to her and asks her to make a request to King Solomon. From this, we can see that Bathsheba has, has a recognized stature in the king's reign. I believe that this speaks to the respect which Solomon must have had for his mother, for her wisdom and strength and courage. Adonijah asked Bathsheba to ask Solomon to give Abishai, the Shunammite, who was David's comfort in his last years, to be his wife. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon, and I quote, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. Verse 19. This request of Adonijah was a threat to King Solomon, as marriage to a widow of the previous king was a way of making a claim on the throne. This resulted in the execution of Adonijah and secured Solomon's reign as the king. I imagine that Bathsheba lived out her days secure in the abundant and peaceful reign of her son, King Solomon. What would have happened if Bathsheba had not gone with David's messengers? I believe that like Mary and other strong women of the Bible, she followed the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Her actions were ordained by God. And I think in many of these women's stories we've heard today, we find a similar story. Uh, as Amy pointed out to me before the service, we have here these five women, women we have one who dresses as a prostitute, one who is a prostitute, an adulteress. Women who we wouldn't think are, are going to lead to the Son of God, and yet they do. As I said when I began David's story, in particular, the story of his terrible sin has been a story for me of the reassurance of God's mercy and grace. As she was a partner to this sin, she too suffered God's wrath with the loss of her first 
And yet, God's grace and mercy were also shown to her as she raised the next king of Israel and became one of the mothers of Jesus. 